0: Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Doing good, great to see you. For those of you I have not had a chance to meet, my name is Mackenzie Matthews. I am our Connections Director here at Timberline. Some of you guys might know my husband. He's our youth pastor, Pastor Justin J. Matt, as they call him, that's my husband. Um, I brought a cute picture of my family, of course I did. Yep, there's our cute two and a half year old son, Powell. He's the real star, he's the real star. Of the show, but that's my cute little family, and this is me. I'm so thankful, so honored to be here with you today. Uh, we are in a series called Jesus Hope, Help, and Healing, where we are focusing on Jesus, what he did with his life in ministry, specifically through the book of Mark. Uh, we're working through the book verse by verse, taking in each miracle, each teaching, each posture of Jesus, and asking, What hope? help and healing did he offer? Is he offering to us and through us in our world today? This morning, we're looking at Mark chapter two, verses 13 through 17. It's five verses, but I'm telling you guys, it is packed full of stuff for us today. So we're gonna just, we're just gonna dive right in. We're just gonna start, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus was getting a lot of buzz. He's healing people. His teaching is compelling. The masses are coming. We see this again and again in Jesus' ministry. And then verse 14 says, As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now this one verse Um, has so much to break down within it. First, we know that Levi is a tax collector. Now, we certainly don't love doing taxes, most of us, right? But this is really loaded because there's a whole lot of context for what a tax collector was at this time to this culture. And so I want to imagine it together. If you would put yourself in this with me, Let's try to have the feeling like it would have been towards a tax collector. So I want everyone to imagine with me your favorite experience. You are getting a parking citation, okay? Yay, <laughs> right? You know the feeling? Now imagine that that parking attendant writing you the ticket is working for a government you despise, okay? A government you would consider the enemy. You are not a fan, okay? So it's extra frustrating. Now imagine that the parking laws that you're violating had just been introduced, and you're actually getting a ticket for parking in a place that you have been parking in for years before this. You've been long doing this, and you're just recently getting fined for this. You actually don't think you should be getting a fine at all. How does that feel? Feels pretty unjust, a little unfair, a little wrong. Might make you a little frustrated. Because here's the thing, you're working really hard, like really, really hard. And financially, you're barely making it. You're scraping by. Have you ever gotten a ticket in a time like that? I have, several times. (laughs) When I was in college and I had no money, like comically little money, I got a speeding ticket. And I cried so hard. (laughs) Sure did, and still got that ticket, oh yes. I absolutely deserved the ticket, okay? Or um, I remember being in California. There was a season I lived in Southern California, 2013. I drive through one of those left-hand turns. I thought I could make it. I could not, okay? A flash came. I was like, oh, I know what that is. I'm like, shoot. Get the ticket in the mail to see my face. You know, the ones where they send of your face. My face is this. I'm like, can I dispute it? No, I'm clearly guilty. And you want to know how much a ticket is? 2013 Southern California, take a guess, $500. Oh yeah, actually over 500. I think it was like 515 or something. I cried again, so hard. The feeling when you are barely making it financially and you get a ticket is a distinct kind of blow. In the first century, the time of this account, 98% of the population is paid minimally for the hardest work and then taxed by a system designed to keep the peasants poor and the elite rich. The wealthy weren't taxed. They were beneficiaries of taxes. This is before W-2s, right? No 1099s, no IRS in this. You just pay what you gotta pay. You pay what you're told. And the wealthy that are benefiting from these taxes, it's not like they're going door to door to collect. They hire this out. So now imagine that the person riding you this fine is your first cousin, who very much knows your financial situation. He knows your family, he knows your neighborhood. This is no stranger to you. Sometimes we're the most critical of our family, right? So yeah, that's the guy that they hire for this job, that thing that's financially wrecking you, that's straight up oppressing you, and then it gets worse, and then your very cousin decides to give himself a tip. Decides that he needs more. So when you're barely making it financial, you get a ticket for a thing you've been doing for forever. It completely runs you dry. It makes the government you despise more powerful. Your cousin is the one doing this to everyone in your neighborhood. And as a result, he's the richest man in town. How messed up is that? He works for the enemy. He chose personal wealth and comfort over loyalty and family. He became the oppressor for his own benefit. That was the unforgivable sin. I don't know if you are like me. I can barely stand it when someone cuts me off at the grocery store, right? Like, there's a line, buddy. There's a line, right? gonna let them know. I'm actually pretty non-confrontational, but you should hear me in the safety of my own vehicle when someone cuts me off. Ooh, I'm gonna tell you, right? I'm gonna tell you. Now, we feel minor injustices, and we get angry, don't we? Maybe not you. Not you. You are peaceful. You are serene, I'm sure. But me, oh yeah, oh yeah. How do you think you would have felt or responded to Levi? There's some dynamics at play with the tax collector, and particularly with the tax collector's relationships with everybody else. Everybody's got feelings about this guy. So now imagine with me what it would have been like to be a tax collector. I wonder how you would get into it what you thought it would be like to be a tax collector. At some point, you just get so sick of working so hard and never getting ahead. So sick of living in poverty at some point to just think, you know, actually having the stuff, the money, the house, the clothes, the fancy donkey or whatever, right? To just no longer have to suffer so much to barely get by. Then I'd be good, actually, right? It's like they say, um, money can't buy happiness, but have you ever seen someone unhappy on a jet ski, right? (laughs) The problem was that they'd have a jet ski and no one to share it with, right? How do you think that worked out for them? Beneath all the impressive stuff and the high-class dinner parties, rubbing shoulders with powerful Romans, to which they would never be one of, right? They were a different kind of outsider there. Underneath all of that, there would be an unexpected inner poverty, if I can say it like that, an aching loneliness. Of course there would be. Do you think it was what they hoped it would be? I met a radiologist a few summers ago who finished his training in the height of COVID. Um, It's very traumatic, but he shared with me openly about how much he hated what he did. He hated it. He tried to actively convince others going into the field to do something else. So when I asked him, "Well, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do different?" He said he had no choice. He had way too much debt to try to be the thing that he didn't want to be anymore. He was stuck. He had to stay in his lane, or so he felt. I wonder if a tax collector felt the same. Like their choice was made, their image sealed, the relationships fractured. They're stuck, trapped in this role. There's a social fabric to first century Jewish culture, a very clear hierarchy. The priests, the rabbis, the Pharisees, they are socially as good as it gets. A status symbol for sure. And then all the way at the bottom of this social hierarchy You have lepers, prostitutes, and tax collectors, but tax collectors were the very basement of this social hierarchy in Jewish culture. They literally were not even allowed to go to the temple. They couldn't enter the doors. To cross the threshold would contaminate the space. Too sinful to be in the room. There were cleansing rituals in place, but those were difficult, made it a steep task, to enter. In this time, there's no printing press, right? There's no way to hear the word of God, to know the love and redemption of the creator outside of having it read to you out of the mouth of a priest in the temple. That voice, the priest's voice representing the voice of God, God's voice, God's authority, now says, no, not you. This isn't for you. There's no way to present an offering There's no way to restore yourself back to God. It was next-level rejection and condemnation. And they were despised. So can you imagine what that felt like? All of that sets the stage for this scene. I want to read it again, just because it was so much that I've said since the first verse. No, lest you forgot, right? As Jesus, walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. The tax collector's booth was like a toll station, basically, for this road moving village to village. You had to pass through a toll, and Jesus is just walking along, and he sees Levi. I mean, really sees him, and he extends that life-altering welcome, that life-altering invitation and call to follow me, and he did. This was likely the first time Levi had spoken to or been spoken to by a rabbi in public since becoming a tax collector. A typical rabbi would never be seen speaking to someone like him. A typical rabbi would be pursued by the best of the best academics and intellectuals who would then beg to be interviewed for the chance that the rabbi might find them worthy to be their disciple, That's what this verbiage indicated. Follow me meant discipleship. And to follow a rabbi in the first century was a pursuit like getting into Harvard Medical School. The best of the best could try to follow a rabbi. And Jesus pursues and chooses ragtag fishermen and a tax collector. It was nuts which the fact that both the fisherman and the tax collector were included is also profound. Those fishermen surely knew Levi. They paid taxes to him. They were oppressed by him, and now they are disciples together. Right? Today, we have a hard time disagreeing about anything and maintaining relationship. Right? I've seen well-established Friendships and small groups in the last few years decimated by disagreements. Disagreements over masks, schools, culture. The issues become more important than the relationships. The commitment to each other eclipsed by political alliance. How good are you at disagreeing and maintaining relationship? Do you have relationships in your life with whom you profoundly disagree? Disagree. How devoted are you to the bigger allegiance to Jesus and his mission through his people, his church? The disciples, the fishermen and a tax collector, clearly shared a devotion to Jesus that overcame their vitriol for each other. May that be true of us. Amen? Now, we can just read right over this a little bit. Not realizing how striking it would have been, how striking it is, that God extends a healing welcome. Jesus sees Levi. He sees right into the emptiness and inner poverty, disguised with all the strappings of success and prestige, and he welcomes him into a better story. This welcome was a healing one. Jesus looks with affection on the oppressed and shockingly on the oppressor and offers to make them family again, gives a new role, a purpose, a trajectory. He still does this. He extends that same healing welcome to each and every one of us, even now. Whatever inner emptiness or anxiety or pursuits that leave us unfulfilled, he welcomes us to a better story. He extends a healing welcome to us too. Jesus flipped the whole system on its head and Levi's all here for it. He was all in. Most scholars agree that Levi is also Matthew who went on to write one of the books of the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew. It's the same guy. At some point, Jesus likely changed his name. We see this with Simon, who became Peter. We don't have a record of when or how his name was changed, but it's noteworthy that his name is changed to Matthew. Matthew means gift, gift. So this man, who was a taker by trade, became a gift, a giver. Sometimes the very worst thing about us the very thing that we feel the most ashamed about becomes the very thing God uses for his glory. He extends a healing welcome. Verse 15 says, While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. God throws transforming parties. This tax collector who met this renegade rabbi who changed his life hosts a party for him and brings all of his friends who were other tax collectors, obviously. I imagine it was elaborate. I imagine Jesus eating hummus on the patio of the largest house in the village with all the most despicable hated people from the surrounding area. I love the way that Brennan Manning says it when he, when he writes, one of the mysteries of the gospel tradition is this strange attraction of Jesus for the unattractive, this strange desire for the undesirable, this strange love for the unlovely. Again, he is a buzzing up-and-coming teacher and rabbi. Crowds are drawing near to him. He's healing people. You guys remember the account from last week? A couple guys put a hole in a roof to get their friend near him, right? He could hang with anyone, but he spends his time here with these people, the people who were told or believed that they were nothing, or the people who were told or believed that they'd made it, right? With all their own scandal and shame and identity issues and high rank or low status, all outsiders, all very sinful Each had been discarded, especially by the religious folks of the day. to those people Jesus aligns himself. Who are the socially discarded in our day? Who are the people that would have been outright radical today if Jesus were to go have dinner with? Can you imagine him doing this? To eat with someone in the ancient world was an expression of identity and belonging. It's way more than it is for us now. Like, you're just not going to come to my house and then leave in a couple hours, right? It's belonging. And belonging is transformative. Would you agree? This was one transforming party. Jesus painted pictures of this kind of thing in other teachings. He used imagery from banquets and feasts that the coming kingdom would be celebrated like a wedding reception. One place we see this is in the parable of the lost son. If you remember this account from Luke 15, it may be the best story ever told, but it's a son who breaks relationship with his dad. He asks for his inheritance early. He basically says, wish you were dead, would like the cash. The dad somehow is like, sure, sure. You go. He goes off, he squanders it all, all gone, on wild living. And it isn't what he thought it would be. That isn't what he thought it would be. He's at a real low point, he decides to go home, to try to be a servant, if they would even consider him to be one. In this culture, it, he would have been shamed, he would have been punished, he would have been banished. It's like, you're dead to me, <laughs> a big deal. But he decides to give it a go. He tries to come home. And he walks up the driveway and it says, while he is still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and he's alive again, he was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. This paints the heart of God for us. It's incredible, it's incredible. But what's transformative about it was belonging. There was a relationship that was broken and it is restored, it is sealed and celebrated with a meal. The fattened calf was a big deal. This is no ordinary party. This is a big deal. Feast. God throws transforming parties where we each belong and have a place. We're restored dignity and identity. Where Jesus would say to you, he would look you right now, he's like, you, come. You sit over here by me, right? Okay? That's what I imagine this feast feels like for these folks the most hated and despised sinners in town, eating with Jesus. Verse 16 says, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, he asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? (laughs) Why is Jesus acting like this? It's outrageous. This is radical behavior. It, honestly, it sure was. A rabbi has no business doing this. Now, The Pharisees get a bad rap. And I mean, Jesus had stern teaching and rebuke for them, this is true. But you need to know that he also took them very seriously, more seriously than any other group of people other than the poor and his own disciples. You see, Pharisees took their faith very seriously. Theologian F.D.L. Brunner calls them the serious, which I think describes them perfectly. They were incredibly devoted, and this is admirable. They deserve respect. I certainly hope that I would be considered to be serious about my faith like they were. Sometimes we can read accounts with Pharisees and they're the adversarial bad guys, right? The beady-eyed bad guys in the story. That's how I imagine them, at least. And they are the ones that get Jesus killed, they are. But Jesus took them seriously. And their question here is legit because there is a biblical doctrine of separation. We read it in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Or we see again in Psalm 26, I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assemblies of evildoers. I refuse to sit with the wicked. Yet here is Jesus sitting with precisely these types. So who was right, Scripture or Jesus? Okay. From a Pharisee's perspective, what possible good could fraternizing with such people do for this community's moral seriousness? Right? And if one of Jesus' purpose is the renewal of the people of God, what kind of example is this dinner party setting? This was not at all what they expected from the Messiah and they were quite keen on disproving him and any claims on his messianic purpose. There's a tension here for the Pharisee, and it makes sense that there is. There's certainly wisdom in paying attention to who you spend all your time with. It's like the saying, you become like the people you spend the most time with. This most certainly should be taught to our children. This should be paid attention to. This is wisdom, right? It is. But... While the Pharisees' devotion to purity and holiness at all costs is admirable, they lost the heart of the matter. They didn't see the full picture. They didn't see from God's perspective. Jesus' rebuke to them regularly was about the heart, theirs and God's. He would say things to them like you're whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to, be, to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woof, right? Or again, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Or he quoted back to them, Hosea 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. The question becomes, are the laws for the benefit of God or the laws for the benefit of those God loves. People take precedent over the law. The toys are for the children. The children aren't for the toys. The Pharisee made it all about the toys, the laws, and they missed the heart of those laws. Toward God, the Pharisees were generous, almsgiving, prayer, fasting, But scripture says that God prefers generosity towards people, and that they were not. There's a danger to falling out of alignment, losing the heart of the matter. It's possible to look like you have it all together and be completely out of alignment with God's heart. So we can understand the confusion of the Pharisee. We can appreciate their devotion and the outrageous truth that Jesus brought front and center in this account is that God dwells among sinners. He dwells among sinners. What does he say? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This statement is profound. It is like a mic drop moment, boom, right? He's declaring a purpose statement here. Why did he come? He came for the sick, for the bad, for the sinner. Now, if only the bad are his mission, like, what do you do with that, right? Seems like the only options are you become bad. Doesn't sound right, right? Or you realize that you're not so good. That we are, in fact, sick. That we are, in fact, the people in the wrong whom Jesus Is putting right. You're sicker than you think. December 20th, 2021, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Aggressive, scary breast cancer. I have some photos of my journey that'll slide across as I share about it. Um, It was, it still is, shocking. The last year plus, I've been dramatically altered to make room for my treatment. I had 16 rounds of IV chemo. I lost all my hair, as well as all the other brutal parts of chemo. I had invasive surgery. I had immunotherapy all year. I had 33 radiation treatments. Currently, I'm about halfway done with eight rounds of oral chemo. I've got more surgery coming this summer. Um, I go to PT. A lot. Got a lot of friends over at UC Health. <laughs> I'm being monitored very closely. And all things considered, I'm doing well. Like, I'm wildly grateful. I'm wildly grateful. I don't think God gave me cancer, but I can see the way He's using it in my life. I've known Him in a deeper way than I ever did before this. And I've certainly spent more time with doctors than I ever imagined that I would. But here's the wild thing, here's what's wild. When I was diagnosed, I didn't feel sick. I didn't look sick. I honestly kept thinking to myself, like is this even real? (laughs) I have cancer, (laughs) like what in the world? Sometimes I do still, what in the world? But it was very real, very soberingly real, aggressive, lethal, and running wild. I love this gif, this gif describes some of how it feels. We're fine, right, it's fine. He's in a flaming room, it's fine, right? Our temptation, dare I say our threat, is to live our lives like that. To tell ourselves we're not actually sick. We don't actually need saving. We're not so bad, right? We're a good person. We're not as bad as that person that we know. We don't need God. We've got a credit card. We have willpower. We deserve happiness. Whatever it is that culture tells us, right? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you don't think you're sick, you never go to the doctor. A person needs to realize their own sickness first. And I'm telling you, you're sicker than you think. We are sicker than we think. Peter Kreeft said, for Socrates, there are only two kinds of people, the wise who know they're fools and fools who think they're wise. Similarly, for Christ and all the prophets, there are two kinds of people, saints who know that they're sinners and sinners who think they're saints. Which are you? Which are you? You know, the gospel creates a way for us to live freely and lightly. It's like a road between two ditches. On one side of the ditch, you have the reality of our wickedness, of our brokenness. We are capable of incredible evil. We're a few bad decisions away from utter destruction, right? And then on the other side, you have the reality of our immense value. We are made in the image of God. We are precious. We are loved, right? Now, if you only have one side, if you only dwell in the truth of your wickedness, then that just leads to despair and shame, right? But on the other side, if all you think about is our immense value and how beloved we are, then you have pride, right? The both and of the gospel is what leads us down the road between those two ditches. I love the way Timothy Keller says it when he says the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We all need to receive God's grace. It's time for the doctor to see patients. And all that's required of you is to take a number. If you're a sinner, which you are, you're invited to follow Jesus. Just like Levi. He sees you. And I mean, he really sees you. The invitation is wide open for you today. From wherever you are, Jesus would seek you out. He would invite you as you are to take a step to follow him. He would come, he would knock on your door. He would invite himself in and you might be uncomfortable with what he saw in your house, right? But he would not be. He would be comfortable with you until you became comfortable with him. More sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe at the very same time. More loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let's pray together. Father we just pray now God we present ourselves our hearts before you we imagine ourselves being as wicked as we are and having you look us in the eyes and saying yes you come right over here and sit next to me that you would see us that you would pursue us that you would restore us and sanctify us God, the reality of your grace is hard for our minds to even comprehend. But God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make it sink deep down into our bellies and our bones, that we would know it afresh today, that we would be people of your grace that has covered us. God, and I pray you would help us to look more like you in our world. God, that we're no better than anybody else. We're no better than anybody else. God, would you help us to be an extension of your love and your grace and your belonging, and your healing welcome and your transforming power of belonging in our world. Might that be true of us, God. And I just pray, Lord, for any um, divisiveness, for a, where there are broken relationships, where there are disagreements that have fractured your church. We pray now, God, for unity. Help us to be devoted, God, to you, your mission above the other things that eclipse it might that be true of us but god we we look to you we focus on you and we're so grateful for your grace we worship you now let you're going pray amen amen we hope you encountered the love and power of jesus in today's service if you're interested in giving For joining serving opportunities and much more, visit timberlinechurch.org slash connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.